take them, please, and turn to the book of Ephesians, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, and uh, spend a couple minutes in this passage before we gather around the, the Lord's table today. And we have been just taking our time going through the book. We're in no rush, and we'll take a break in the summer and uh, go back to um, what we did last summer, uh, some of the essentials of the Christian faith, and um, in the morning and at night, I think we're going to do uh, something on the attributes of God, but um, we'll, we'll be in Ephesians for another five or six weeks before we take a break. I want to read uh, the whole of Paul's prayer uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, although we'll only spend some time in the first number of verses, but uh, I'd like to read the whole section uh, this morning so we get the big perspective, starting at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Father, we thank you now that uh, we can continue to worship you around your word. And uh, what, a, what a privilege it is, again, to handle this eternal Word of God. It's, we handle stuff all day long and all week long that um, will, in 100 years or in 200 years, probably be replaced by something else. And yet when we come to handle the Word of God, we are dealing with something that is eternal. Father, that's pretty astounding. And what a privilege we have of engaging with it. And I pray that you would... Help us to understand it as we began singing, open the eyes of our heart. Lord, illumine us that we might see the truths in this that you want us to know this morning. So help us, I pray. Make this book live. Make it live in my heart. Make it live in the hearts of those that are here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1 were, uh, were what we call a doxology. Um, another way we might put it is a living eulogy. It was one long sentence of Paul that he wrote uh, praising God, praising God for all the blessings that he has poured out on us, the blessings of being chosen in him, the blessings of being loved by him, the blessings of being adopted by him. And then he talked more about some of the blessings that are ours in Christ, how in Christ we have redemption, um, which begins with the forgiveness of our sins. How in Christ we have these amazing, uh, the, the mystery has been revealed to us of salvation. That in Christ we have this great hope that one day everything will be united and it will be made perp- perfect again. And then as he ended in that, little, that long sentence by telling us that not only has God blessed us, not only has he blessed us in, in, through Christ, but he has blessed us in placing his spirit within us, which is just an outstanding reality. That God dwells in us through His Spirit as a guarantee of our salvation to come. 
And so Paul has been spending this first little while just praising God and drawing our attention towards him. And you wonder, well, what's the natural response then to the great things of God? Well, it is prayer. And, and immediately Paul moves from this, this great statement about what God has done and how he has blessed us to recognizing that that is being worked out in the lives of different Christians. And it drives him to his knees. And so we come to, to verse 15 following, and we come to one of the longest prayers in the New Testament. In fact, it is the longest prayer in the New Testament. And again, it's another long sentence. Our Bibles tend to, or our translations tend to break it up because we have short attention spans. But this is one long sentence again. And it's the longest prayer in the Bible. And, and, and as Paul moves from this doxology, uh, he, his only response is to begin praying and thanking God for the way that he is working um, his ways in the lives of people. And so as he drives then towards prayer, we begin to see some of the things that fuel the prayer of Paul. And uh, it's helpful because I, I think it's instructive for us as we come to those times of prayer. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I, I, I go to prayer, and, and after about 15 seconds, I'm speechless. And, I, you know, you, you kind of think, well, what should I pray for next? Or, or you get distracted. Or, or, and, and as I think about Paul and his prayer here, it helps me um, add some more structure to my prayer. And so what is the fuel of Paul's prayer? Well, there's three things that I see that, that begins to fuel his praying. And the first thing that, that begins to fuel that is hearing about transformed lives. He's just, he's just amazed that this God that he has just praised, it's not just sort of theory, it's reality. And he doesn't just, he doesn't just like think about God choosing, God actually chooses. He doesn't think about redeeming, God actually redeems. And so he's hearing these stories about people's lives who have been transformed by this saving God. And it's not unlike um, 1 Thessalonians, when uh, Paul writes about them, he says, uh, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And so Paul here is just, uh, his, his prayer life is, is enhanced because he sees God working in people's lives. And how he sees God working in them is he says, I have heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's this transformation that has taken place in, in the way that they view God, in the way that they respond to Jesus Christ. And the object of their faith is Jesus Christ, the one who has redeemed them, the one who has saved them, his life, his death, his resurrection, his, his sinning at the right hand of the Father. Uh, we, we just mentioned some of the names of Jesus. Those are what fuel our faith. And so he, he's, he's so encouraged by their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's their faith that has separated them from this uh, culture in which they live. The culture was going in one direction. People were worshiping money. They were worshiping false gods. They were wrapped up in, in the world that they could see. And their faith has separated them out of that and directed their concentration towards Jesus Christ. And Paul was just astounded now to hear that they were relying on the provision of Jesus and they were living for his glory in the midst of a sinful and a self-serving culture. And so this drove Paul to pray. He says, God, thank you that you're saving people. Thank you that they're trusting in Christ. Thank you that their thinking is, is being shifted from uh, an orientation to the culture to an orientation towards God. 
And what are some of the things that we see about faith? Uh, well, we see that um, somebody who is saved, they have an increasing desire to, to, to be holy. One of the verses that has always struck me uh, in John, uh, about John the Baptist was, uh, he was never one to be shy with the truth. And as some of the Pharisees were coming to him and talking about being baptized and asking him what he was preaching about, um, uh, Paul or John wasn't sort of convinced by their, by their words. And he said to them, well, show me fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, there needs to be a change in your life. If you're claiming to have faith in Jesus Christ, then demonstrate that. It should be evident in the way that you live. In another place, Paul writes to Timothy, and he says in uh, 2 Timothy 2.19, Let those who name the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. If you profess faith in Christ, if you profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there should be an increasing transformation that is taking place in your life. A shedding of of sinful ways and a putting on of, 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 of things that emulate Christ. Secondly, this faith is not only evidenced in, in increasing holiness of life, but it's evidenced in, in just the way that we live and in, in the things that we do. When, uh, when uh, Paul is, um, or James is writing to the Christians there, he makes it very clear that they understand that saving faith ought to make a difference in somebody's life. And he says to them that faith without works is dead. That the evidence of, of the conversion in the heart and life, the evidence of a transformation by the power of God, is this movement towards serving ourselves to serving others and to serving God. And you read Hebrews chapter 11 and you see in there person after person after person who demonstrated good works in their lives as they put their faith and trust in God. And so Paul is rejoicing in the fact that he has heard that these people have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and it's evidenced in some of these ways. The second thing that he says there is that he has heard about their love towards all the saints. Now that's such a mark of conversion, is it not? You love the people around you. And it's interesting that Paul doesn't just say, and your love for the saints. He has that little word in there, all the saints. And you know, um, I'm not always the most lovable person, but you have to love me. And I'll tell you a secret, you're not always the most lovable people either, but I have to love you. But that's a mark of conversion, is it not? That's a mark that, that we are becoming more like God. That's a mark that, that God is beginning to transform us from the inside out. What does John say? Um, Three verses from John, we know that we have passed out of death into life. In other words, we know that we are Christians because we love the brothers and sisters. Whoever does not love abides in death. In other words, whoever does not love his brothers and sisters in Christ, where's the evidence that you have passed from death to life? And then another place, he says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 1 John three twenty three, And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us to do it. 
this is the amazing thing. That, that, I mean, there's, in this room, there are people, we would never under normal circumstances be sitting beside each other or in front of each other or behind each other. We come from all different walks of life, from all different social stratas in life, from all different perspectives in life, and we are growing to love one another. That's not natural. That is the work of God in us that is proof that he has saved us. And so Paul is saying, as he, as he begins to pray, he's saying, this is what's fueling my prayer life. God is at work. He's choosing. He's adopting. He's electing. He's redeeming. There is evidence that, that he is changing lives. And what struck me about this particular passage here is I'm sure there was a lot in these uh, Christians that he was writing to that wasn't good. After all, they were fairly new Christians. They were living in the midst of a fairly pagan culture. And Paul could have picked out four or five things and said, you really need to fix this. You really need to do better there. But Paul doesn't do that. He emphasizes encouragement and commendation. These Christians weren't perfect, and Paul was aware of that. But he was giving thanks for the fruit that he heard. He was giving thanks for the things that he saw that were encouraging in their lives. And I appreciate the way that Paul emphasized the good that he heard about, while certainly he was aware of the growth that still needed to take place in their lives. You know, I found it takes no special skill to see what is wrong and to criticize other people. In fact, that comes rather naturally for many of us. It's another skill entirely to look at the positives, to look at the things that are encouraging. I don't know why this is, and I'm sure this is just me, um, but I remember when my kids would bring home their report cards, and my kids were pretty smart kids, and as all of your kids are. Um, but, you know, they would come home, and their report cards would, would have a number of A's and a number of B's, and then always there would be one that wasn't so great. Where would I go to the one that wasn't so great? And, and without even commenting about the good stuff, I'd say, so did you not hand in some papers, or like how many classes did you skip, or... You know, like it was, it was always the negative side of things. And I'm learning to, that, that, that sometimes when you emphasize the positive, the, the, the negative begins to change just automatically. And this is what Paul does here. He, he hears about them and he commends them for their faith and their love. And I trust that God will increasingly do that in our church. I love this family here because one of the things that I love about this church is it's such an encouraging church. It is. There's, there's so many people who, who speak such good things about one another. And I would just encourage you to do that more and more and more. Yes, there is a time to, you know, as, as the Bible says, to take somebody aside and say, I think you're, you're going in the wrong direction here. But, oh, let's be an encouraging people. Let's continue to emulate what Paul demonstrates in this particular passage. So one of the things that fuels his prayer life, was that he was hearing about their faith and he was hearing about their love and that just really stoked him. And he said, wow, this is great. I'm going to start praying even more. The second thing, he says there, I'm remembering you in my prayers. And I think he was, Paul's prayer life was fueled by simply hearing about other Christians. And I think it's so important that... um, that we get missionary newsletters or that we check the bulletin boards and to see what's going on or that in our growth groups we're aware of the prayer, prayer requests and the prayer needs that are there because those are the kinds of things that fuel our praying. 
So that when you go before God in the morning or the afternoon or the evening, and you're wondering, well, what shall I pray about? You bring out, bring out this prayer letter, or you bring out this list of prayer requests from your group, and that begins to fuel your prayer. I'm amazed when I read about uh, the end of some of Paul's letters, the end of Romans chapter 16, for example, or the end of Colossians, um, starting at verse 7 of chapter 4, the, the number of names that Paul lists there. So-and-so in this house and, and that family and uh, this couple is not getting along. Would you, would you talk to them? And, and he was just aware of stuff that was going on in the Christians' lives. Not in a busybody way, not in a nosy way, but in a way in which it would fuel his prayer life. And so it was what was going on in the lives of his fellow Christians that fueled his praying. And then thirdly, it was just that he had a heart full of gratitude. He says there that um, I do not cease to give thanks for you. I, I, I think that so much of our pray, praying suffers because it's not um, full of thanksgiving. And that thanksgiving ought to be woven through our praying. It's, it's part and parcel of our praying. It's the context of our praying. In Philippians 4, 6, he says, Do not be anxious about everything. But in, uh, or anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Or in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, he reminds us, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is a way of submitting ourselves to God. It's a way of trusting God. It's a way of understanding that, that God is good and all that God does is good. It's a way of getting us out of a negative perspective into a positive perspective. And so as Paul prayed for these Christians, as he prayed for his fellow Christians, it was, it was sort of in the context of, of thanksgiving. And so these were the things that fueled his intercession. Prayer is so important, is it not? Paul was giving thanks for all that he had heard about these people. He continued to pray for what God would yet accomplish in their lives. And praying specifically and regularly for God's people and letting them know that we are doing so is such an encouragement and it builds up the church. You don't know how much it means to me. And it happens almost every week, if not every other week, where somebody will come up to me and they'll say, Paul, we've been praying for you this last week. Or we'll be praying for you this coming week as, as, as you know, we know that it's, it's going to be a tough week. You don't know what that does for me. And we need to do that for one another. If you're thinking about somebody, why not phone them and say, you know, I was just thinking about you, about you today, and I want you to know that I'm going to be praying for you this week. Or send them a card in the, in the mail and say, I was thinking about you this week, and I just want to know that, that, that God has placed you on my heart. I don't know why, but I'm going to be praying for you this week. Do you know what that does for a person? To know that somebody is praying for them? And so, what an amazing thing it is, um, as Paul talks about prayer here, the fuel of his prayer. But then we come, I, I think, to, and this is where we'll, we'll finish off this morning, about what is at the heart of his prayer? What is the heart of a prayer warrior? Uh, in this prayer, there's at least four petitions, and we'll look at three of them next week, but we'll, we'll stay with one of them for the rest of this morning. Uh, and I want to say this uh, uh, carefully this morning, but I think it's important to say, and it's just by way of encouragement, not necessarily um, way of discouragement. But one of the things that I notice as I study the prayers of the Bible, and as I study even what Paul tells us about praying, is that his focus is almost always on spiritual issues. And I think sometimes our prayer meetings and our, our, our prayer is, is 
held up by physical issues and physical realities. That is not unimportant. Please don't get me wrong and don't misunderstand me there. But I wonder if, if our praying, just we need to flip it a little bit and spend the first part of our time on spiritual issues and spiritual praying and then move our way towards praying for the physical needs that are represented by, by people that we're praying with or that we're praying for. I see that in this prayer, and I see it in other prayers, that the focus is on spiritual things. And so one of the things that I, I see by, by reading this prayer with Paul is that he understands what the greatest need of mankind is. And I, I wonder if we were to take a, a couple minutes and ask that, what would you think is the greatest need that you have to be praying for somebody? And we might think, well, Paul, well, he's thinking about possibly the people in Ephesus, and, well, the greatest need is that they be protected from idolatry because there are so many different idols in so many different temples. And others, we might say, well, maybe Paul needed to pray that they would be protected from sin because, after all, they were new Christians and they were really struggling. Or maybe they, they, they needed to be prayed for because they were being persecuted because, as they expressed their faith in Christ, they lost their job or their family had kicked them out of the home. And so there could have been any number of things that we might have said, well, this is what Paul was praying for. But that's not what Paul prays for. He prays that they might come to know God more. That they might have a greater understanding of God. What is the most important thing in the world for every Christian? It is to know God better. It is to know God more fully. What is the most important thing for somebody who's wrestling with with faith or wrestling with religions or wrestling with life? It's that you get to know the God of the Bible. That you come to understand what he is like. That you come to understand what he has done. That you come to understand his plan and his purpose. That you come to understand his character. That is the most important thing that you can ever pray for somebody. Father, would you open their eyes to see you and to know you? Knowing God is what we were created for. And this is a pursuit that will occupy us into eternity. I, I, I continue to think of this. Um, uh, that, that eternity in the new heaven and the new earth, it will be spent worshiping God, but it will be spent worshiping God through the study of nature, through the study of biology, through the study of physics, through the study of, 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 of the world, through the study of, of, of animals, of, of the universe, of whatever it might be, because all of that reveals God. The heavens declare the glory of God. All of nature declares the glory of God. So in our study of that, we come to understand God more. So it, 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 it makes sense to me that throughout all eternity, I will be coming to know more and more of God. Because God's wisdom and God's power and God's might and God's character is revealed in the world that he has created. And in the new heavens and in the new earth. And in scripture... Um, uh, knowledge of God is almost equivalent to salvation. In John 17, 3, he says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ that they have sent. This is eternal life, that they might know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And uh, one of the things that I uh, have so grown to appreciate about Christianity is Christianity is not a mindless thing. Um, Christianity... There is stuff about God and about the world and about myself that, that, that when I read the Bible, it just blows my mind. And I can study for hours at a time. I can read books. I can think, and, and I can't figure it all out. There is so much to learn. 
<laughs> I remember once um, my dad telling the story of a little kid who was acting up in church, and uh, the pastor came down. It was actually his son, and he picked up his son, and he was going to take him out and give him a little bit of a licking. And on the way out, the kid turned around, and he says, pray for me, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, <laughs> so we'll pray for that little girl as <laughs> she's, she's on her way out. Uh, where would we? Oh, yeah. <laughs> We're talking about how important it is to know God. Uh, Paul is, is praying for something here that is a promise of God from centuries before. In Jeremiah 24, 7, uh, God says, I will give them a heart. To know that I am the Lord. Wow. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. That's simply what Paul is praying for. Lord, will you fulfill that in the lives of these believers? In Jeremiah, he, in another place, he says, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. Wow. They shall all know me. From the least to the greatest. And Isaiah looks forward to a, a time in the coming kingdom of God where he says, The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now that's a lot of knowledge. I, have, uh, I, I always marvel at um, pictures from the space shuttle and, and farther of the earth. And what, what amazes me is actually how much water there is on this world and how deep that water is. And when you sort of think about that and then throw that back into Isaiah and what he says here, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the earth. Wow, that will take me a long time to know God. That's amazing. This is what Christ has come to do is to bring us a knowledge of God. What does, what does this mean, this, this knowledge of God, and, and why is it Important well because a knowledge of God is the heart of all true understanding in the Christian in the Christian life. It's the place where where the Christian life begins. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of of, of wisdom. As Christians, you know we might we might be able to remain ignorant of many things, but we cannot be Christians and remain ignorant of God. Proverbs 9.10 says, the knowledge of the Holy One is insights. One of the things that amazes me in our culture, and you see it increasingly, is that we have access to incredible stores of knowledge. And what, 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 what further amazes me is not only that we have access to all this, is that while access to knowledge about the world and, and sometimes useless stuff is increasing, knowledge of God is decreasing. That we spend more time on Google and we spend more time on Wikipedia and we spend more time pursuing rabbit trails about stuff that may or may not be important and less and less time studying about God and learning about God. I was thinking, and, and I do this, um, and it would maybe be an encouragement to you, but to maybe read one book a year about God. One of the best places to start and one of the be best books I think to start of is J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. I think we have it in our library, but it would be worth buying. That book is, is a gold mine, and I've reread it a number of times. I've got probably six to eight books on, on strictly on, on God. And they, they, they help. They, they fuel you. 
they, they, they put life in perspective. And so a knowledge of God is the heart of all true understanding in the Christian life. I think secondly, um, why does Paul pray that they might come to know God? Because a knowledge of God is a great preventative against sin. If you're struggling with sin this morning, I would say study about God. There's other things that you can do, but this is one thing that you can add to your repertoire. Begin to learn about God. His love, His grace, His mercy, His holiness, His justice, His wrath, His righteousness, all of these sorts. Begin to study them. Begin to understand them. Begin to know why He's created you the way that He has. Begin to see that God has a plan for your life that is far better than pursuing sin. And I love this particular um, thought when it comes from uh, the life of Joseph. Uh, when, when Joseph, it says that he was being hounded by Potiphar's wife day after day after day to sleep with her. And day after day, Joseph refused. And then finally, Joseph says to her one day, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? See, Joseph had an understanding of God. He had a picture of God. He had a view that he didn't want to disappoint God, that he didn't want to let God down, that he didn't want to to come under the discipline of God. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So, loved ones, a knowledge of God will serve as a great preventative to sin in your life. Thirdly, uh, because a knowledge of God is essential for Christian growth. (laughs) I'll leave some of those passages for you to to look at um, in 2 Peter and Colossians 1.9 about how um, a knowledge of God is the basis of our our, our Christian growth in life. But I, I wonder why we sometimes circumvent this in our lives. Why we spend so little time uh, um, growing in our knowledge of God. As somebody wrote, if you want to grow as a Christian, you must first of all grow in your understanding of God. It's an amazing privilege to be able to know God. Jeremiah 9.23 and following, he says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justiceness and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. What do we boast in? We boast in the fact that we know God. Who cares about the wisdom of this world? Who cares about the strength of men? Who cares about the riches and the fame that some attain if all of these things are had at the expense of ignorance towards God? This is what Jeremiah is saying. All that stuff is worthless if it's in a context of ignorance towards God. Think about this for a minute. What do you boast about? What do you talk most often about? What's the subject of conversation that animates you and that really gets you excited? What are the things, the thoughts that fill your mind most often? Do we consider knowing God the greatest thing in all the world? Do we understand that knowing God is the single greatest privilege that we have as a Christian and one that sensitizes us to every other issue of importance in life? Is a pursuit of the knowledge of God at the center of your lives. That's why Paul prays this for people. 
This is what he's, he, he has come to understand that knowledge of God influences every other area of your life. Parenting, business, retirement, relationships, money, everything is influenced by your knowledge of God. To the degree that we know God, or to, to, to the degree to which we know God will determine the extent to which we love, trust, and obey Him. Or put negatively, the deficiencies in our faith, love, and obedience can be traced to our weak knowledge of God. We must get to know God better. How do we get to know Him better? Very quickly. Paul writes here, and he, he says there, that the, God of our, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, in verse 17, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul understands that it's God that gives us the ability to know himself. And as I reflect on this particular passage, some of your Bibles will have spirit in a capital S. Some will have it in a small s. I am one who tends to think that this is a reference to the spirit of God, not the spirit of man. And so what Paul is praying here is he's praying that God would give you a full measure of the spirit. That God would, God would give you the fullness of the Spirit in your hearts and in your lives. And in Jesus' ministry, he says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. What we all need is an increasing measure of the Spirit in our lives. What we all need is, a, is an increasing sensitivity to the Spirit of God. Ears that are open to to the words of the Spirit as He teaches us and as He instructs us. In other words, what Paul is praying here is that we be Spirit-led people. That we be spiritual people, as he says in Galatians 5, that we are to walk in the Spirit, that we are to be led in the Spirit, that we are, as J.I. Packer says, that we are to keep in step with the Spirit. Because it's the Spirit, as Jesus says, the, the Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring remembrance to uh, bring to your remembrance all the things that I have said to you. And so what Paul is praying is for an illumination, for a, for a spirit sensitivity, for, for God to open the eyes of our heart that we might know him more and we might be sensitive to him in a greater way. I'll end with this particular verse because I think it speaks for itself about um, what Paul is saying here. And it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 19 to 16. And he says there, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of a person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not a spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. There it is. We have received the spirit that is from God, that we might understand God more. And we impart this in words taught not by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is amazing what Paul prays for this people, is it not? This is our greatest need. It's, 
It's to know God. And this is what we ought to be praying for our spouses. This is what we should be praying for our kids. This is what we should be praying for our neighbors. Oh, God, would you bring them into a greater understanding of who you are? God, would you, would you reveal yourself to them in an ever-increasing way? And as we come to the Lord's table this morning, we come to a place in which I think more and more of the attributes and the characteristics of God are sort of zoomed in in one spot. And here we see the manifold, uh, amazing character and wisdom of God in the Lord's table. As we come to the Lord's table, we see something of his, his justice, of his love. We see something of his wrath. We see something of his wisdom. We see something of his righteousness. We, we are made aware of something of the amazing plan that he had in saving us. And these are just a few of the things that we learn of God at a table such as this. And so as we come this morning, as we partake of the Lord's table together, would you ask God to, to maybe help you understand one aspect of it more than another today? And that as you partake of this table, your heart will be filled with gratitude and thanksgiving as you reflect on what God is continuing to reveal to you.